I'm Seattle Times political reporter Jim Bruner. And I'm Seattle Times City Hall reporter Dan Beekman. Let's talk politics. Look, we're proposing to do something that hasn't been done for 30 years. The courts have said 30 years ago that we should fully fund, that the state should fully fund education. There's a reason it hasn't happened for 30 years. It is a heavy lift. Welcome to episode 15 of The Overcast, the weekly Seattle Times politics podcast. You just heard Governor Jay Inslee. He just rolled out his state budget proposal for the next two years. He wants to spend a lot of money. He wants to grow state spending by something like 20% raise taxes by $4.4 billion in order to deal with some major problems the state's facing, including a constitutional mandate to fully fund public schools for the first time in 30 years. $4 billion, right? Yeah, it's $4 billion in tax increases. We're talking carbon tax, uh, capital gains tax, tax on service businesses. Anyway, we, you and I sat down or actually got on the phone with Joe Sullivan, our Olympia reporter, and we kind of broke that down. Yeah, we talked to Joe. But first, you're going to hear us talk to Brett Chifalo. He's uh, from Everett, and he's one of the so-called Hamilton electors who are trying to deny Donald Trump the presidency. They have this Hail Mary uh, plan where they're going to try to convince each other to cast their electoral votes in such a way that Donald Trump doesn't become president. And that's happening on Monday. We talked to Brett. Yeah, it's the Electoral College meets on Monday. It's this uh, little-known uh, apparatus that still exists. It's in the Constitution, and some people want to That's take advantage of it. That's how we elect a president. <laughs> Apparently, people are learning. We're all learning this year. We're learning new things. And we should say, we talked to Brett before a federal court hearing where he was trying to, in the narrow sense, invalidate a state law or get a federal judge to invalidate Washington law that would uh, fine electors such as himself if they don't follow the state's popular vote. And he's argued that that's unconstitutional. The judge didn't buy it. The judge did not grant them a a preliminary injunction to stop the law. They filed an appeal. The lawsuit will go on, you know, probably after this electoral college. And there's a story online that Jim wrote about this that you can click on and read after you're done listening to it. Yes, all the clicks, all the information at your fingertips. But first, let's get into this week's winners and losers in politics. Uh, a winner this week was Seattle City Council member Shama Salwant. She uh, had, along with her colleagues on the city council, unanimously passed on Monday a an ordinance that takes aim at the move-in costs that renters uh, pay their landlords when they uh, move into a new apartment. Yeah, she's trying to cut the move-in costs like the first and last month's rent? What, what did this do specifically? Yeah, actually, the details are, uh, are a little confusing. Uh, the big picture here is that what Sawant would like to do is uh, enact some kind of rent regulation or rent control, but that's against state law for cities to do, so she's trying to look at other ways to get at the cost that renters have. And so what this would do is, uh, first of all, put a, uh, a cap on on moving costs. So it would limit, it will limit the combined costs of a security deposit and any non-refundable fees to no more than the amount of the first month's rent. Uh, And also renters will have the right to pay their moving costs in installments uh, or according to alternative plans agreed to with their landlords. So there's this cap on costs moving in and also as a renter, you have the right to to pay it uh, as you go for at least a period of time. 
And so there was some pushback from landlords, but Sawan and the city council move ahead, so she's the winner. Yep, uh, for sure. And who's your uh, loser this week, Jim? I'm going to go with uh, Kathy McMorris Rogers, the congresswoman from the Spokane area. We named her a winner a couple weeks ago because it looked like she was probably Trump's choice for interior secretary. It turns out that didn't happen. She was passed over, and she's uh, going back and you know going to stay in her seat, of course, and continue representing the 5th District over there. So why do you think she wasn't picked? Does that have something to do with the fact that the current uh, interior secretary is uh, from Washington State as well? Well, I haven't heard that. I could be a consideration. Sally Jewell is, is the current you know, interior secretary. But Trump picked uh, Representative Ryan Zinke from Montana. He's a uh, former Navy SEAL. He's a... Uh, Bronze Star recipient, apparently, an avid hunter. And he apparently, from the reports that I've seen, he hit it off well with the Trump team over there in Trump Tower. And even Trump's son, apparently, Donald Trump Jr., was involved. And so they developed some kind of rapport and, and they went that way. We're here with Brett Schifalo. He's uh, one of 12 Washington State Democratic electors who are going to meet and vote for the, in the Electoral College here on Monday. And he's co-founder of Hamilton Electors, which is a group that is, is trying to convince the Electoral College to basically not go with the popular vote and, and put up a third candidate and possibly block Donald Trump from, from the White House. Thanks for joining us, Brett. Thank you for having me. So tell us about, you, you filed a lawsuit in uh, federal court, and that lawsuit would try to invalidate the state law that would fine you and other electors $1,000 or up to $1,000 if you don't abide by the popular vote in the state, which of course went for Hillary Clinton. Can you explain what this lawsuit is trying to accomplish? So Hamilton Defenders, the group of lawyers who are doing this work pro bono, myself and Ms. Levi Guerra, who is also a presidential elector in Washington State, um, we firmly believe that any state law that penalizes electors for voting their conscience um, is fully unconstitutional. And many constitutional scholars who have written about this over the last 50, 100 years agree completely. The fact is, no, no elector has ever been penalized under one of them. Right. This law in Washington state, for background, was put into place after we had a faithless elector in 1976. Mike Patton. Mike Patton, a Republican who's a state senator now. Mm -hmm. He was a big Ronald Reagan fan. Yep. He, the state went for Ford. He said, no, I'm going for Reagan. Yep. A lot of people were mad at him, and that law came into effect after that. Since then, there hasn't been a faithless elector, right? That's absolutely correct, but the, the people of Washington have elected him to the state house for 14 years, I think, and then it's been 10 years for the, uh, for the state senate. So Yeah. So this fine, I mean, would this be a hardship, really? Uh, you could probably get people to pay for it with a GoFundMe page. That's what the state attorney general is arguing in saying that your, your case maybe doesn't have merit. Well, I mean, there's many reasons why we do believe it has merit. First off, Miss, Miss Guerra has a, a large family that she's worked multiple jobs to support at differing times. So $1,000 is an unbelievably significant amount to someone like her. And it's, it's not a, a small sum to myself either. I, I don't have a ton of money. That being said, the reason it's not baseless is because any law that it looks to prevent uh, you know, an officer of the federal government, which we are at this point, from doing their constitutional duty, we believe is one that's worth fighting. So what's the scenario if you, if you um, 
get an injunction if you prevail at the hearing and uh, you get that injunction. Uh, what then? What does that mean for this movement that you're a part of? So the reason it's quite significant is if a federal judge finds with us and, and puts in the injunction, it puts all the other 28 state laws uh, trying to prevent electors from voting their conscience in question, and it puts their constitutionality in question. And that might, might embolden Republican electors who already believe that Donald Trump is unfit into voting uh, their conscience. And do you feel like it's a sign uh, of the significance of your case that, uh, was it, Jim, the Trump campaign? Yeah, of the, tr the Trump campaign attorney has made a motion to intervene, as they have in other states, so they're clearly watching this. Yes. Right, and, and I, the state Republican Party, too. Yep, and I think that's a good sign that uh, they're worried, and yeah. they're worried about what we're doing. And then let's explain why they're worried, because we've been talking kind of narrowly about the <laughs> the, the fine, but your, your point really is a larger one. You're mm -hmm. trying to get Republican electors, essentially, to, to not abide by the voters in their states who wanted who voted for Donald Trump. You, you and the Democratic electors in Washington state cannot actually really subtract any any electoral votes from Donald Trump, right? So what's the scenario in which you think you could throw this election to the U.S. House, which is what would happen if, he, if Donald Trump doesn't get the constitutional majority? And how well, likely do you think it is? Well, there's two scenarios that we're looking at. One of them's less likely, one of them's more likely. The, the less likely scenario is if Hillary Clinton or someone else in the Democratic Party metaphorically or effectively released the electors to vote for the unity candidate. And if all 232 of uh, Democratic electors voted for a, a Republican that wasn't Donald Trump, like a Mitt Romney or John Kasich, then it would take 38 Republicans to skip the House altogether and make that person president. Second, and, and the more likely you know, outcome, is if 37 Republican electors vote for anyone other than Donald Trump or abstain, that takes Trump, Donald Trump below the 270 needed, electoral votes needed, to, to become president. And the Constitution then denotes that uh, it goes to the House of Representatives for a whole process there. And so uh, to connect your case here in Washington to that overall picture, you feel that uh, uh, a victory in your case here could open the floodgates in other states where it wouldn't matter. Uh, well, and here's the thing. I, I think Democratic electors doing this does matter. What we're trying to, what Hamilton electors is trying to do is show that this is an emergency situation that is darn near unprecedented in American history. And by Democratic electors supporting this unity candidate, while it doesn't take any numbers away from Donald Trump, what it does do, do is show that Democrats are putting country before party, which is what we're asking Republican electors to do. And, you know, you talk about a unity candidate. Has that candidate emerged or, or is everyone going to decide at the last minute? I've heard Mitt Romney's name. I've heard others. Well, and uh, it's a good question. We are trying to get as much feedback from Republican electors as we can. We, we want to respect their choice. Um, any of the candidates for me as a liberal Democrat, I'm going to disagree with most of their policies. Um, but stopping Donald Trump is, is a moral imperative. And, uh, you know, John Kasich has come up. Mitt Romney has come up. Susan Collins has come up a lot. Colin Powell. Of course, John um, Kasich has said, don't do this. Don't vote for me. Right? Yes, but you know who else said that in history? George Washington. George Washington, before the first president was being elected, said he did not want the position. He was going to go back to Mount Vernon and retire. In fact, he went back. And when, Cong when the Electoral 
college equivalent at the time, unanimously elected him. They sent a message to Mount Vernon, and he reluctantly agreed because he knew it was best for the country. And, you know, we think that's instructive in this situation. Huh. You know, let's, uh, this may be obvious to some people, um, but let's talk about your politics. And, you know, you said it's a moral imperative to stop um, uh, Donald Trump from becoming president. Can you just talk a little, very briefly about why you think that is? And, and you were a Bernie Sanders supporter. So sort of take us on your own sort of political moral road to this. Sure. Well, the first thing I'll say is that when it comes to being a moral imperative, we've looked very heavily at Federalist 68 to gain guidance from what the Founding Fathers wanted us to look at. They essentially had three qualifications. They wanted to make sure a president didn't get into power if these were the case. They didn't want a demagogue to to come into power. They didn't want someone who was influenced by foreign powers to come into power. They didn't want someone who had... Uh, who was uh, essentially just, uh, you know, they didn't want the tyranny of the majority where someone with the low arts of popularity and, you know, the base arts of intrigue to get into the presidency. And we firmly believe that Donald Trump uh, fails on all those tests. Now, when you talk about my own politics, I was a Bernie Sanders supporter. I'm an FDR liberal. And you had said before the election, and I interviewed you and wrote about it, that you were considering not voting for Hillary Clinton um, as a you know, at least as a possible protest even before then. Yes, it was something I discussed, and it comes from the exact same uh, constitutional duties of electors, which are to make a decision on who's the best person to be president. Um, You know, outside of this, I may have opinions about the Electoral College that maybe we should change it. But as long as it's the law of the land, we can't just pick and choose what part of the Constitution we follow. And, you know, does it it worry you at all, let's say— enough electors um, fell in line with that way of thinking, and and one of those two scenarios that you outlined uh, occurred. Um, Would you worry that it would set a bad precedent in the sense that, imagine if um, uh, Bernie Sanders had been elected president through the electoral uh, process, uh, and um, the shoe was on the other foot, and enough electors uh, uh, were Hamilton electors and and uh, stopped him from becoming president. Someone who you really think is qualified. What about what about that shoe on the other foot? Sort of. Well, considering I came out before the election and and considered not placing my vote for Hillary Clinton, my my values and ethics on this has been very have been very consistent. The the other thing I'll say is that. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't believe these actions would have been necessary for George W. Bush. I don't believe these actions would have been necessary for Ronald Reagan. It's not a partisan thing at this point. And the bottom line is, this is the way the system's always been. Just because electors have acted as rubber stamps doesn't mean the system is designed for them. But to just be to that. press back on a little bit, yeah. I mean, you wouldn't have felt. I mean, Bernie Sanders supporters felt. A lot of them felt that that the system was rigged against them anyway. Sure. Can you imagine? The, the outrage that you might feel. And can you imagine what a lot of Donald Trump supporters might feel about what's going on with you and, and you know, the possibility of, of trying to send the election to somebody who didn't actually receive any votes, didn't win any states? I mean, doesn't that, do you think that the country would, uh, you know, that would be a better scenario than, you know, moving ahead with the system and going with the vote that happened? Well, there's a lot of questions there. Right. The, the first one with, the, with uh, Bernie Sanders you know, at the end of the day, I think all electors have the responsibility to look at what the founding fathers put into action and see if the person they're voting for crosses those thresholds. The only candidate in history that I believe hasn't is Donald Trump. 
That being said, as long as it's a system that is in place in the law of the land and in the Constitution, it is the way we elect the president. It, it, it always has been. This is not a change. Um, and I would say with the primary comparison, it's, a, it's not an apt comparison. There's nothing in the primary that's in the Constitution guiding how that system works. Our Constitution makes it very clear how we elect our president, and it's never been democratic. In fact, as recent as 50 to 70 years ago, they had still listed the electors' names on the ballots. Nothing's changed in the Constitution since that time. It's kind of become a like a vestigial, forgotten system, right? You were yes. elected, and we should explain, the electors were elected at congressional district caucuses. In Washington. In most cases, in Washington yeah. State. And at a couple at the state Democratic convention. And, you know, I covered the state Democratic convention. And there were a lot of people who ran and gave three-minute speeches. But nobody, I think, was sitting there thinking that these 12 people would potentially have this super consequential decision in front of them. I mean, do, do you think that electors is one of the side products of what's going on now that people will think more about the system that we do have? People should, and I hope they do. We need to have a national conversation about how we elect what's been called the, free, the leader of the free world. This isn't something we should be confused about as a people. Um, and I hope I can do anything I can over the next few years to, to try to, to drive this conversation that we need to have. Do we want this to be the system we elect our president? Uh, by do we want ranked choice voting do we want instant runoff voting do we want straight popular vote this is a conversation we need to have because in the absence of this conversation we're left with with exactly what's spelled out in the constitution and i have to act uh in response to what the constitution says uh, one of the things uh, that's been responsible for the whole hamilton electors uh, movement blowing up a little bit in uh, in media in recent days is some of the news that's come out um, regarding Donald Trump and Trump campaign and um, and Russia. Uh, how much can you talk about sort of how you see that playing into this conversation and, and what's going on with that? So I can tell you this. I signed on to a letter with, I think at this point, over 40 other electors asking for a briefing on an intelligence briefing. intelligence briefing on uh, any information regarding what the CIA has been talking about for the last week. Um, I don't have any preconceived notions. I think there are concerns and I would like to know more so I can make as diligent and as educated a choice when I sit down on December 19th as I can. Um, and December 19th, by the way, when you meet in all the electoral college meets in the state capitals, do you have a sense for whether there, this is how far-fetched this is that you will get enough Republicans to, to flip over? Yeah. Have you been talking to Republican uh, electors? Uh, do you have a number of elector, Republican electors who are, who are ready, to, ready to do this? We're not sharing numbers at this point because the, we, have mo we have many, many, many conversations going on with many of our lawyers and other electors with Republican electors. And they are all at different points in those conversations. I would say we started on November 9th thinking this was a 0.0001% chance of happening, a true Hail Mary. Because of the work of, you know, a lot of our volunteers, high level and otherwise, and, you know, and the fact that Trump, Donald Trump keeps on making it clear that he's unqualified for the office, it, I think it's grown to something like a third. I, I, this, is, this is a real thing that very well may happen. You know, am, am I going to bet my life savings on it? Probably not. 
But the bottom line is it's real and it very well may happen. The reaction to what you, you've done is taking a journey too, right? Because you and I talked mm-hmm. again before the election when most people thought Hillary Clinton was going to win. So did I. Yeah. And, <laughs> um, you know, there's a, another elector, Robert Satyakum, who got a lot of attention. He said, you know, he hoped it came down to a close electoral college tie and he would, he would refuse to vote for Hillary Clinton and, and, you know, and upend the election that way. Your point was more educational and that you had the right to do it. But can you tell us what, 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 has, what was the reaction then among Democrats? Did you get a lot of blowback? And, you know, have they magically come around now that you're, you're thinking of blowing up Donald Trump? So, well, I, I'm, I, I don't, I'm never going to use the term blowing up Donald Trump, but um, I got a lot of negative reactions from, from Democrats. Um, the, what I was try, simply trying to do was pull, point out the state laws as being unconstitutional, which I firmly believe, and also to educate as many people as I can about the actual system we have in electing the president. Robert Satyakum has moral problems with both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and couldn't bring himself to vote for them. That's not where I stand. I I have a a great deal of respect for Secretary Clinton. Um, She was not my first choice in the primary, but, you know, I have have a great deal of respect for her. Um, But after I came out with my plan on November 9th, um, a lot of the people who had had very critical things to say about me had, had, had really turned around on that. So the Democrats who were outraged are suddenly like, go, 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 and yeah. telling all the Republican electors they should do what they would have been horrified if, you know, had gone the other way. Of course, there's a lot of hypocrisy to go around. We know Donald Trump, I think, tweeted before the election um, one thing about the Electoral College and then, um, you know, changed yeah. his mind on, on the merits of it, you know, with what's going on. Yeah. There's uh, been a lot of flipping of minds. Right. And that's because, of course, Hillary Clinton has won the popular vote, yeah. but not the Electoral College vote, yeah. at least the assumed Electoral College vote. Yeah. The one thing I want most people to know is that the popular vote isn't even mentioned in the Constitution. The electoral votes are the only thing mentioned in the Constitution when it comes to electing the president. If it came down to it, state, it would be constitutional for state legislatures to actually appoint electors and not even have a popular vote. Now, I don't think that's a good idea at all, but you know, this is what the Constitution says, and we, we need to be educated about it. And one thing, I guess, on a somewhat lighter note, uh, there's a lot of talk about Hamilton uh, electors, and there's also a lot of talk recently, uh, popularity of the musical, Hamilton musical. Uh, how... how did you choose uh, you know, the name for this movement or your organization partly based on the popularity of the show? And how is that, is that sort of giving you a boost uh, uh, with this? Well, what I would say is the main drive behind naming our group and electors who choose to go this direction, Hamilton electors, is because of Hamilton's Federalist 68, which gives us great detail on what the Founding Fathers meant when they created the Electoral College. That being said, something as popular as the Hamilton musical certainly doesn't hurt for getting the message out there it was more of a bonus than anything else. Right. Well, maybe there'll be a, a sequel, the Hamilton, <laughs> Hamilton Electors musical. There you so go. We'll see. <laughs> Thanks for talking to us. Really Absolutely. Thanks, Brent. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. We're here with Olympia reporter Joe Sullivan, who covered Governor Jay Inslee's budget rollout this week. Uh, the governor is proposing increasing state spending to overall by, I think, over 28%. Is that right, Joe? What, what over 20%. Yeah. So this is 
including four, I think, $4.4 billion in new taxes. We're talking a carbon tax, capital gains tax. What Increase about, in part of the business occupation tax, rolling back some tax exemptions. And this is, a, this is from a governor who ran, by the way, in 2012, saying he didn't think we needed a bunch of new taxes to fund education. He's changed his tune. What did the governor, you know, what did Jay Inslee argue when, when he rolled this out this week? Well, he basically argued that uh, the state has both a moral and constitutional obligation to pay for some of these programs. Um, obviously, you know, one part of it is the state Supreme Court's McClurry education funding order, which uh, the state has not uh, fulfilled after several years of kind of wrestling with it. And so $2.7 billion of the of the new increases would go toward fixing that. But then a lot of money is being spent in a lot of other areas, mental health, as well as uh, raises for state workers. And, and, and even, uh, uh, Joe, it looked like uh, even the education money was going to uh, go beyond what uh, McCleary requires. Is it right? is, yeah. And, and so the governor, you know, argues that, well, we shouldn't just be doing the bare minimum. And Democrats have been talking for the last couple of years about uh, addressing a shortage of teachers. And so a lot of uh, the governor's plan also goes toward, you know, teacher mentoring and also hiring more uh, social and emotional health workers in the schools, like school nurses and counselors and psychologists. And is this, let's talk about the, the reception that this is getting so far. Is this sort of pie in the sky? We know the state Senate remains in Republican hands. And I, I saw some of them saying, and be quoted in your article, and they're out on Twitter saying, you know, this is DOA, and really attacking the governor on taxes. What's the reception so far? Uh, that's this is kind of where we are, and we're kind of see, seeing what played out in 2015 when the governor also uh, uh, put forth a uh, capital gains tax and a carbon cap and trade plan. I mean, Republicans were pretty hostile to that, and they are this time again. And those plans uh, didn't even get votes in the Democratic House. And so um, I think, you know, this is kind of the governor's opening bid, saying, you know, this is all the stuff that the state should go ahead and do. You know, yeah. probably knowing but that he's not going to get there on all the negotiation. Of it. It's a negotiation. Yes. This is his starting point, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I used quoted in your article saying, "We're the state that built the Grand Coulee Dam. We're the state that built the Boeing 747, and we're the state that can fully fund basic education after 30 years." So, I guess his his rhetorical uh, flourish there is, um, "We can go big." Uh, That's right. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. He's- They've labeled he's labeled his budget bold action now. I, I'm assuming that the Republicans will have a different label for it. <laughs> yeah, they <laughs> probably will. Yeah. <laughs> What's the next step? Do the Republicans when do they have to lay their cards on the table? You know, so, they they like to criticize the governor, but are, how are they going to put out a budget? You know, and is it going to they going to try to do one that does not raise taxes at all, or do you have a sense yet? I would think they will. I mean, the last few Republican budgets, you know, just as the the, the Democratic governor goes high in this, the Republicans are probably going to try and go low uh, with their own negotiating point. You'll, I think you'll see a Republican budget probably in March. We've got one more, um, I believe, one more economic uh, revenue forecast um, that will give kind of an update on where the state is at with tax collections and uh, the budget outlook. And so Republicans and then House Democrats will also release their own budget in March, and then all those three groups will be kind of jostling to to negotiate something in between them. And in Inslee's budget, there's looks like there's about three hundred million dollars for mental for the mental health system. Is that something? I mean, that's a that's a huge chunk of it. Is that something that might be uh, uh, less partisan? Is that something that Republicans could? That- 
That might be. I mean, you know, I think there's I think there's starting to be consensus that, you know, Western State Hospital is just too big in that the way forward is not keeping this this huge psychiatric hospital which is becoming rarer and rarer in the country uh moving toward um instead toward a kind of a community mental health model where you have kind of residential treatment beds around the state. And I wonder how much um, homelessness plays into that conversation. Uh, you know, covering Seattle, you hear a lot of talk about, um, you know, can't we all get behind uh, the idea that uh, our mental health system is inadequate and uh, that's contributing to the struggles we're seeing with homelessness? I don't know if, if that will come up. I think I think it will. I think they, you know, they feed into each other, and everybody's kind of um, aware of that. And and also, you know, that that we have people with mental health issues that wind up staying in jail because there's no beds for them either. And so all these things kind of interlock. And I, I think lawmakers are fairly aware of that down here by this point, especially after several years of kind of wrestling with how to fix the system. Um, you know, whether or not they come to an agreement on how to move forward and how much money to put into it, you know, of course, is another question. On the McCleary question, do you think that the Republicans sort of even accept the premise that the Supreme Court has lobbed at the legislature that, that uh, you know, that there is a, a constitutional problem? I mean, I think I've seen some proposals to, to change the definition of, of basic education so that they essentially don't have to spend more money, and, and they're, they're again. Do you think they accept the premise that there needs to be a big increase in spending, or is that is that subsumed below the idea of we can spend more money if it comes in naturally, but we don't want to raise or impose new taxes? Yeah, it's a really interesting point because there's an interesting tension there because Republicans in Washington State have run the past several elections on this premise that. You know, we're we're putting more money in education without raising a lot of taxes or any taxes. And so Republicans, on the one hand, have, have run very hard on fully funding education. But on the other hand, there are some within the party that don't like that the Supreme Court has kind of stepped onto the legislative turf and is kind of telling them what to do. Um, yeah, I mean, we've even heard, I've even heard some dem- Democrats have expressed a little frustration with with the court in some of its mm-hmm. remedies. They they. they Democrats, of course, don't have as big a problem raising taxes, but you know it is up to the legislature traditionally to divvy up the state budget. Yeah, and I think you've you've seen the court kind of more recently kind of step back a little bit um, in the sense of not taking any further actions against the against the state and trying to tell the state exactly what to do and how it should be done. Um, right, the state's but still it, under I, contempt order, and is state still under contempt fine. order? Right, of fifty yeah. million now, it's up to fifty million or something. It's it's up there, yeah. Yeah. Um, and the court didn't extend that or anything. You know, it, it really does come down to taxes, though. I mean, it, it's it, if you accept the premise that it's going to cost you know two point seven five billion dollars in the next two year budget to raise taxes or to fund McCleary, I mean, that's the money's got to come from somewhere. Right. If and if not, you know, this the session could drag on late into the summer, and the Supreme Court could get involved with even yeah. even deeper sanctions. This is going to be maybe a long and interesting legislative session. Yes. Yes. It will. I mean, if it was if it was easy to do or less expensive, it probably already would have gotten done by now. All right. Well, we'll keep watching this. Thanks for talking to us, Joe. Thanks. Joe. All right. Thanks for having me. That's a wrap for episode 15 of The Overcast. Thanks for listening, and thanks to our guests this week, Brett Chafalo and Joe, at Olympia Joe on Twitter, O'Sullivan. 
Let us know who we maybe should talk to next week. You can reach us on Twitter at dbeekman or at Jim underscore Bruner. You can call and leave us a voice message, 206-464-8778. You can email us at seattletimesovercast at gmail.com. Let us know how we're doing. Uh, Be sure and rate us on iTunes, SoundCloud, subscribe to us, listen, come back. Tune in, Stitcher. Tune in, Stitcher, all the intertube methods of reaching us. Until next week, have a cloudy day.